You are listening to Investing Matters, brought to you in association with London South East. This is the show that provides informative, educational and entertaining content from the world of investing. We do not give advice, so please do your own research. Hello and welcome to the London South East Investing Matters podcast. My name is Peter Higgins and today I have the pleasure of speaking with John Human, the former editor of the Investors Chronicle magazine and now the co-founder of the Investability Educational Investing website. Hello, John. How are you? Hi, Peter. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Good, good, good. Now, today, John, I'd, I'd like to start our interview with you by thinking a bit about your early career and what led to where you are now. You know, going all the way back to you as a graduate almost. Where do you want to start, mate? Oh, yeah, it's a very long story. So uh, hopefully we've got time. I actually studied history at university and uh, I've actually been back to university since then. So I'm a historian by background. But when I left, I, I strangely went into advertising with a, with a sort of detour via a... Uh, a sort of very cutting edge culture magazine called Sleaze Nation, which which some people may have heard of. In fact, it's very very topical now, given what's going on in, in Parliament. It's inspired. <laughs> Indeed. Well, we're not going to go into that on this one. <laughs> no, no. But yes, it's sort of the, the echoes are there today. So so it, it's sort of a very strange beginning, having, having sort of left university. I ended up with a client who worked in financial services, and I ended up going to work for them. And it turned out to be a venture capital looking at sort of technology investments. It was a company called Evolution Capital. And um, sort of over the years, that, that company evolved into what became Evolution Securities and, and more of a sort of general stockbroker. But, but I spent the beginning of my career sort of traipsing around the country looking at, at little tech companies and uh, and seeing if they were sort of ripe for investment. And, and yeah, that's really where I began to learn my trade as an analyst. And as I said, that, that business then evolved into something that looked more like a sort of stockbroker as we know it, where I covered as an analyst software and computer services. And I, and I picked a wonderful time to do it because uh, I think I started just before the turn of the millennium and left three years later. And that, that whole time was essentially the, uh, the, the deflating of the dot-com bubble. It was a funny old time. Yeah, the, the great financial crisis, as we call it. Well, no, no, no. It's the one before that. It was a dot-com collapse. Oh, the one before that. Okay, I want to go back just a little bit because you mentioned the Sleaze Nation bit and then the bit at, at Publicis where you're a media company. But I wanted to get back to the nuance of already, you're at the stage here, John, where you were headhunted for this investment boutique startup called then Evolution Capital and later Evolution Securities, if I remember rightly. That's correct. Firstly, what were you doing at the media behemoth, publicist, to garner that sort of attention where Evolution goes, we've got to have that little wide boy there called John Human working for us? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it, it was sort of all, you know, everything's been very serendipitous. So that, that agency that I worked for was a division of, of the bigger publicist group, and we specialised in the technology industry. So we had clients like Hewlett Packard, Oracle, Adobe, companies like that. So I spent a lot of time just reading and putting research packs together for the account teams, looking at the tech industry, you know, what really was the very early days of it. So I started to build this knowledge, which I then sort of started to just chatting with the clients about who, who worked for uh, one of the big asset management firms in London before he then left to go and set up Evolution. So yeah, it was, it was just, I think they'd, they'd sort of seen my research background, knew that I had knowledge of the technology industry, knew that I sort of had processes behind that. One of the things I did at Publicist Tech, as it was called, was kind of help build their web team. And again, very, very early days of web shops. It was, it was a bit Wild West. 
And I do remember during that time, you know, the other thing that was, was absolutely fascinating was how many people were trying to start their own dot-com businesses. All it seemed anyone ever wanted to do. I'm not sure how we actually ever got any work done because people were either trading the market or, or trying to set up a dot-com. But either way, I, you know, I, I kind of went into... It, it, it was an easy decision to make, you know, going into to sort of cutting-edge tech, which I'd been looking at for a while, was really exciting. Uh, and as I say, I sort of just... I'd built up this knowledge and, you know, knowledge of, of the bigger industry, which, uh, which was attractive to, to, to the guys I went to work for at Evolution. Brilliant, brilliant. So you, you would say you're, you're attracted to, you're already in the dot-com sort of era and the, the nuance of it, the you know, start of it. What was your greatest learning whilst at Evolution then? Because all the texts are bubbling off. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the one thing I've really, really learned, and I think it stuck with me to this day, possibly for, uh, to my detriment, is that, that I am a cautious investor now you know i look at markets with a cautious eye and i think you know when phil and i when we set up investability that was something we took through to that as well you know don't lose money you know when you've seen a, a whole industry unravel particularly in the uk as we did covering software and services there aren't many companies that were on my hatch that exist today you know we saw lots of, of fraud we saw lots of accounting issues we even saw some chief executives in court or one of them ended up in prison. So I took the view away that, you know, just because there is this fantastic industry doesn't mean that every company within it is good. And so you really have to do your homework. And it's also, really, you know, it's a really cautionary tale in that, that actually companies can disappear. You know, companies can go to the wall. Companies can get things very, very wrong. And, and we saw a great deal of that in those you know, very, very difficult years. As we're seeing now, it's almost like as an historian, you see history repeating itself. I've got a question for you later on about that. Now, what, what I'm intrigued by now, John, is that you and I have worked together and we've spoken together and we've seen each other about for, for many, many years now. And now I've always assessed you as being quite a tough, pretty self-assured individual, right? Therefore, I'm also a father to a teenager and you took a career break and you helped your partner throughout that time with your twin daughters. Um, and although you carried on working as a freelancer, I wanted to ask you this very, very important question. Do your twins have you wrapped around their fingers, your daughters? Because mine certainly does. Uh, yeah, I guess they have done over the years. I, I, I suspect they think I'm a soft touch. So, yeah, of course, they're my daughters. They have me wrapped around their little fingers. It's natural. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 what, I, what I liked about that particular time of you taking a break, though, is that even now that's quite progressive, that as a dad, although it shouldn't be progressive, is that you took the important step of taking time out to work freelance, moving out away from your proper job to do freelance stuff, to look after your daughters with your partner at the time. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a different time. You know, things like paternity leave, just they didn't exist back then. And, you know, that we obviously had a challenge ahead of us. And sometimes you've got to make a tough decision, which is which is what I did. And what, what I think I've got to mention is actually while, while, while I was taking that career break, I was still doing work in and around the market. I actually worked with a former colleague who then set up uh, an independent research company, which was sold to to another broker, Spirito Santo. I don't know if you remember them. Yeah, yeah, I've got that here. With that was with Clear Capital, was it? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, it was really, it was really interesting. I mean, I wasn't involved in it for a long time because you know the family commitments really took priority. But it was interesting. You know, we worked in the sales side, and you know, one of the things that I, I took from being a house broker was really how limited you you are sometimes in what you can say. There are relationships that exist within broken firms that really do influence the the independence of of, uh, of the analysts and the research that you can actually do and actually we felt that you know my former colleagues at clear uh, and i 
we felt that actually there was a place in the market for, for genuinely independent views of equities. And, you know, I, I think that's still the case today. We, we saw, we saw you know, a number of these firms uh, emerge at that point. But, but the, real, the model for actually making, you know, a living, making money out of being an independent research analyst was very, was very, very difficult because of the way that research is paid for at that point by trading commissions. You know, not many people were paying for research in and of itself. So, so it was it, it was tough, but I guess the, the point is the reason we did it was because we felt there was something that was lacking in the sort of investment research from the sell side, and actually I think that probably is still the case today. Agreed, very very much so. Independence of research, objectivities, which is what you and I and, and Phil used to talk about quite a lot. Now, after your time at freelancing and, and clear and the results that you guys had there at the time, you took then your first spell at the Financial Times, Investors Chronicle before taking up the huge role of um, senior technology analyst at Ernst & Young. I mean, you're at the top of the tree there, mate. Well, yeah, <laughs> unfortunately not, because it's a partnership. So, <laughs> so unless you're a partner, you are very much not at the top of the tree in, uh, in a professional services firm. Um, that was a fantastic time. Again, it was sort of building on this, this work I'd done, you know, throughout the early stage of my career, looking at sort of big US tech firms. And that, that's largely what we, who we were working with at EY, or Ernst & Young, as it was then. You know, we, we'd produce big thought leadership pieces looking at, at the US tech industry, telcos. You know, this was when bundling, so, the, you know, the idea that a telco was more than just a telco, this was when it was first emerging. So we're working with a lot of big telcos on, on sort of helping them through their, their strategic shift into content and... Uh, triple play, quad play, you know, offering multiple, multiple services, which was felt to be the way that, that telcos were going to keep their customers as markets liberated. So, so yeah, it was, it was absolutely fascinating. I got to work with lots of people over in the US, got to spend a lot of time, you know, talking to uh, companies in Europe, particularly in the telecoms equipment space. You know, we, we, I think at the time, 3G was being built at that point. Um, what we're now, we're now on to five. So that, that was absolutely fascinating. You know, video you know, over mobile was not a thing at that point. So, you know, lots of discussion around, you know, the evolution of, of, of the mobile device. So, yeah, I mean, it's, again, it was just part of this sort of patchwork of learning about how, how the tech and telco industry has developed over the years, which I think really helps you understand where it might go. But yeah, it was, it was an interesting job. It was an interesting job, lots of travel, which was very nice. Very nice. Okay, okay. So you're also doing all the work with the telcos and the tech companies during what was the other crash, 2007-8. Yeah, just before. Just before, yeah. Yeah. So during that financial crash, we, I mean, it was estimated, I'm not sure whether they've ever worked out the proper figures now, John, but it was like $1 trillion of toxic assets of bad loans were dealt with, you know, during that particular time. Have you ever looked at banks in the same light ever since since that time i struggle to invest in a bank i you know i find them quite challenging i think they're you know they're very cumbersome and they're all slightly different as well you know barclays and lawyers are not the same beast so so actually i got i i rejoined the ic i mean it must have been as the gfc was brewing and uh, i got married in uh, i think september of that year and then uh, I, I delayed my honeymoon because I had the opportunity to edit the news section of the IC for the first time. I'm not going to let that one up. And, you know, the, the missus was understanding. So, yeah, I, I rocked into the office on Monday morning and uh, had to find that Lehman had collapsed. <laughs> it was a baptism of fire, to say the least. But I mean, the, the, the interesting thing about, you know, that from my personal perspective is that my pretty much my entire family 
had spent their careers working for banks in, in London. So, you know, I had another perspective of it, which was an internal perspective. I heard lots of war stories about, you know, quite how the banking industry came to be what it was. And, and what it was, by that point, was very, very badly governed. So sort of single-minded in the pursuit of profit. And I think, you know, this, the, the tales I heard were that lending standards had really slipped moving into to the GFC. You know, I, I remember having uh, been asked lots of questions by friends about uh, ISAs. At the time, a lot of people were asking me, oh, you know, there's this Icelandic ISA and it's offering this, this much, you know, th these interest rates. You know, the answer that I often gave them was, well, if, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is, and, and it was. But again, you know, speaking to people within the industry about the Icelandic banking crisis, which was one of the major triggers, there were lots of questions being asked as to where the source of, you know, Iceland's uh, newfound wealth was. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a, I'd say I, having come out of the dot-com boom and being cautious, I then went into that and, and kind of, you know, became even more cautious because, you know, there are things that happen behind the scenes. And, and I realised this at the time, which, uh, which you probably wouldn't expect. Yeah, I mean, it was a difficult time, really, John. I think a lot of people were getting into investing because it was all about tech and technology was enabling people to get into the markets a little bit quicker and all the rest of it. But as you say, you had the local authorities were doing it. They were putting their money with banks in Iceland. And you're going, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It's going to end up really, really badly. And it, and it did. And it was only recently I was seeing some articles still talking about some of the the local authorities, which are still struggling because of the money they lost back then, 10 years, 12 years on. Absolutely staggering. Oh, yeah, I mean, they, they, it was huge. It was huge. It was massive, yeah. And a lot of people, you know, were able to call on the government and, you know, the financial services compensation scheme to actually get lots of their money back. But lots of people had, had exceeded what they were covered for. So, so there, was, there was a big, you know, it was a big fight, but some people did lose out. And, you know, I think it affected confidence in the system quite badly. You could, you could see that. You could feel it. It was, again, you know, the second very difficult time, very difficult market conditions that, that I'd experienced. And, but actually, the strange thing was, by this point, you kind of think, well, it's what happens. And actually, you know, going back to what I learned from the sort of dot-com boom and bust was that, which is what I think that we should perhaps think about now, is that, you know, when a sell-off happens, it doesn't happen overnight. When I worked in, in the broker, it took three years, pretty much, from peak to trough for the FTSE to essentially halve. A bit quicker during the GFC, because it was, you know, much more of a a sort of big bang event, but it still took a long time for the market to hit its nadir. So I do look across the markets at the moment and you see a little share sell off a little bit and, and people, oh, you know, this is the big one. It's, or it's, it's a correction, we're all buying the dip. And it's like, well, in my experience, don't work that way in the short term. Indeed. I mean, the, the beauty of, of what you've been doing, John, is that I just sense the fact that you've always had a passion for educating others, you know, the investors that were buying the Investors Chronicle, for instance, you know, and you set up all kinds of different sort of blogs. You launched the um, Investors Chronicle blog, the Chronic Investor, and you got an award for the uh, the best online financial journalism. What was it called? Oh, uh, Wincott. Yeah. Wincott Award. Yeah, was, uh, that was a, a shock and a surprise at the time. But yeah, I mean, you know, it was just, again, that was during the sort of recovery from that massive crisis. So there was lots to write about. It was great fun. It was nice to, to win to win something as prestigious as that. But, you know, it, and actually, you know, Wincott, I mean, it's worth looking back at Wincott. He, he was a former editor of the Investors Chronicle, you know, many, many years ago, post-war. Um, you can still read his writings. And, you know, the, the, again, a cautious guy, um, you know, with a sort of, a kind of very sort of measured 
way of observing the markets and economics. And, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I would encourage people to go and dig out his works. You can do it through the Wincott Foundation website. They're all there. But it's you know, very much inspired me as the, sort of how I look at markets and how I further develop as a journalist and, and, and colonist, which is, which is what I you know, largely did for, for my decade running the IC. Yeah, I mean, this, this is the stuff about history again, history again, isn't it? It's all about looking back and learning from our past mistakes and things that happened tend to happen again. With regards to all of that, John, what have you learned about your time now, you know, going back to 2008 to now? What do you wish you knew <laughs> then that you know now? Yeah, I mean, I, I wish that I'd been less cautious from time to time. When a market rips, it rips for a while. You know, when it hits that bottom and goes, it goes. So I think, you know, just because markets don't behave the way you want them to all the time, I don't think that means you should stay away from them. So actually, you know, look for the opportunities and, and, and you know, don't always be so worried about things necessarily going wrong because they do happen periodically. Markets do bounce back. And, you know, the thing I've learned definitely over the years is that, you know, markets climb, climb those walls of worry, not necessarily with ease, but they do climb them. There's always plenty to worry about. Always plenty to worry about. So worry less, I guess, is the big lesson. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, but the, the beauty of what you did was it actually all your hard work paid off. You, you did so much during those first few years at, um, at Investor, Investors Chronicle. And uh, if I get this date wrong, please, you know, don't nail me to the mast. But September-ish 2012, you became the editor of Investors Chronicle. I think that's bang on. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely yeah. Yeah. So tell us about that, mate, because obviously that's a massive task now. You're, you're not only doing the other stuff you've done before, you're managing a whole team. And we've often spoke about psychology, but psychology of managing teams is an absolute, oof, yeah. you know, task and a half. Yeah, indeed. indeed. Well, herding cats, I think, would be the expression you would, uh, you would use. But no, I mean, the Investors Chronicle has always had some really fantastic people and still does. You know, there, there are writers there who are at the absolute top of their game. You know, and I can point to people like Bearbull, whose name I shan't mention, even though I, I know who it is. There's, uh, I mean, Chris Dillow, the IC's economist, is you're an absolutely tremendous writer. And over the years, we've had people like Algae, who's now... Uh, left there and and uh, Algie Hall, that is the uh, stock screening guru, Phil Phil Oakley, who uh, I set up Investability with, Simon Thompson, and lots and lots of other fantastic journalists. Uh, Moira O'Neill's a fantastic personal finance journalist who who went on to to do you know or is doing great things at Interactive, uh, the broker. So yeah, I mean you know it was easy when you've got such great people writing with such deep knowledge writing about the markets, and I I, I had a I think it was the guy that set up Private Eye. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. When he took over many, many years ago, he walked into the Private Eye office, saw these incredibly talented and, and knowledgeable journalists around and said, well, what the hell am I here for as editor? And, and so I think he said he concluded that his job would be to, to kind of just sort of jolly everyone along, make sure they had a good time and, you know, give them the opportunity to do their best work. So in that sense, you know, you know, it, it doesn't take a lot of organisation. Hands off. I, funny enough, it's a bit like, you know, perhaps the best way to invest sometimes. But yeah, it, as I say, it was easy because there were so many great people there. And, you know, obviously Rosie Carr is now in charge. Again, you know, fantastic deputy over the years. So yeah, I was very lucky. Oh, that's brilliant, brilliant. Now, one of the things that you did whilst you were there, though, you developed the online and the digital footprint for Investors Chronicle. Tell me about that, because it almost goes back to your Sleaze Nation and publicist days, building and building you know, new sort of um, uh, income streams and content? Yeah, I mean, I think in the first instance, it wasn't so much building new, new income streams. It was really sort of bringing the whole thing up to the digital age. 
so when we launched, you know, we'd, we'd barely been online or barely been on, you know, we had a, a mobile app that offered some sort of share price uh, information, which, which I'd built with, uh, with a couple of colleagues, but that was it. You know, we didn't have a tablet edition. So first things first, let's get this stuff firing because people like to consume media in different ways. So, so we did that, you know, over the years, we, uh, the podcast was something that I spent, you know, that I introduced and, and sort of built up from a standing start. Brilliantly, Mayor had. Thank you. <laughs> but no, I look back, I, you know, I think we must have launched to about five listeners on, on, a, on a podcast platform. I can't even remember what it was now. But, but yeah, that was great as well, you know, giving private investors a different way of consuming, you know, the same sort of content uh, as, as you and, uh, and, uh, and Wheelie do. It's just another great channel and, and, and it's really taken off uh, recently. We sort of expanded that. In, in the end, you know, Phil and I would chat. We did uh, more sort of show-based things. Um, they're doing some fantastic stuff with, with sort of interviewing people across City Fund managers in particular. So, so yeah, that was a big thing, big push for us. And, um, yeah, generally just sort of just tweaking things as we went along. The big problem that I always had, that we, we as a team always had, was, was the tips section. And it, it was something we battled with for years and years and years. Because I think when I started... I think we were doing four large company tips a week, six small company tips a week. You look at the numbers. When you produce that many buy or sell recommendations, your performance is always going to just revert to me. You know, you're going you're gonna to basically be a closet tracker when you're doing that. And, you know, we always wanted to focus it much more on a few sort of conviction ideas. And, and you know, that took, a, that took a lot of doing. We also felt that, you know, when you say buy, you might think that, you know, the numbers on paper or the numbers on a spreadsheet might suggest that, but it, but it doesn't take into account who's buying, you know, the circumstances of the individual, you know, are, are they risk averse? Are they, are they, you know, into sort of highly speculative yeah, growth companies just didn't take that into account. So, so, you know, we, we, we sort of tried to, to introduce things that would, would allow us to make those distinctions, but, but it was very hard. It's very hard, you know, and, and of course, when you're tipping something, if uh, someone buys it and it goes up, they had a great idea. If you tip something, it goes down. It was your, our terrible idea. <laughs> as is always the case, as is always the case. Though. But yeah, it was, you know, it was, again, it, as I say, it's just, it, was, it was a lot of incremental improvements over the years uh, before big redesign at the end of last year. Yeah, which is fun. You, you say you, there was bits and incremental and all the rest of it, but you know, I've, I've got the stats in front of me here and the paid print digital circulation increased by 16%. Your registered audience is doubling. You know, the team, you know, you including others, Phil, Algie and others were winning awards left, right and centre. So that was all under your tenure. Yeah, I, I guess, I mean, I guess the whole thing was, again, it was just trying to refocus everything on, you know, making sure that we were producing the, the content that we felt was most valuable to to the readership, to private investors and and, you know, really sort of, some of the, I mean, Phil, Algae, I think we won it about three times, the, uh, the CFA uh, Institute Awards. Algae and Phil, I know both won Journalist of the Year. And we, we kind, of, we'd kind of thought, well, let's, let's really dig into, let's do analysis, let's do it properly. Like, like we felt that the, the sell side sometimes misses, if even you as a private investor can get your hands on it, let's do that. Let's focus on analysis. Let's be more educational. Let's, you know, give people the tools to fish rather than feeding them the odd fishy tip here. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I love the fact you've got a passion for, for history and you've always ex already experienced .com and the burst and the great financial crash. I'm going to just ask you a question here now. A, as Seth Klarman says, 
and sees investing as an intersection of economics and psychology. If so, how do you see that, John? Do you agree, disagree? I, I, I think that's a really good way of, of looking at it. Um, I mean, you and I have spoken about this before, but, but I, I think this, it's taken a long time to realise it. But psychology is probably the most important thing in investing. Certainly, that's what I believe that. You know, markets don't move because a number changes. They move because people's reaction to, to something changes, because a, a mood changes, uh, because there's energy in the market, which comes from how people are feeling about things. So, so I think psychology is, is incredibly powerful. You know, I think, you know, your own worst enemy, or so your worst enemy in investing is probably yourself. You know, you are the one that will suffer from cognitive biases. You will be the one that, you know, suffers from things like the endowment effects, you know, valuing something more highly just because you hold it. Uh, loss aversion, you know, fear and greed. That was my next question, actually. <laughs> Yeah, but psychology is, I, I, I agree entirely with that. It's, it's, it's probably the most powerful thing in investing. And I agree with you wholeheartedly on that. And, I, and that's why I keep, you know, espousing the, the importance of psychology and, and knowing thyself. And the problem I have with a lot of the people I speak to on Twitter is that unless you're talking about this is a really good idea and you're saying, actually, here's a really good book about psychology or this is what I learned about this reading this book or this is what Seth Klarman said or this is what blah, blah, blah said. It's like, oh, come on, Pete, that's boring. Just tell me what you bought. <laughs> you know, that's what that's all they're interested in. So this other question I had was about fear and greed, John. And as an historian, do you just are you in agreement that we're going to keep seeing these things repeat themselves over and over again? Yeah, forever. <laughs> forever. And, and, so, and so why? Why don't we why don't we as humans learn from history to see that this is coming again? What's going on? Um, because this time is different. <laughs> 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 Those four words. Oh my god! Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, no, no. I, I think you know, human beings have got a tough gig when it comes to uh, to being investors. But it's actually something that you know one of my former colleagues, Algie Hall, wrote about in, in a really fantastic piece. I think what is it called? Tame Your Brain at the IC. And you know, we are little evolved from the sort of hunter gatherers of thousands of years ago in terms of the way we think, the way our mind works, and yet we live in in an increasingly complex system. So, you know, the reactions you have when you're investing are the same reactions you would have perhaps had when you're out hunting or, or gathering or what, whatever it might be. But they're not necessarily the right reactions in this day and age. So you've almost got to kind of like teach yourself how to not be yourself, which is really, really hard. And, you know, people, people are motivated by, by wealth. People are motivated by the sort of thrill of, of being in the markets, um, potentially, you know, making a lot of money when someone else hasn't spotted it you know those those motivations will always be there so i don't i don't i don't know if it's possible to learn from history i don't know if it's possible we can try but you know you've got to take a real step back sometimes and a deep breath it's uh you know it's not a, i don't think it's about learning from history i think it's about really really as you say know thyself learn how to understand yourself rather than understanding that you know someone bought tulip bulbs in holland in in the 17th century for far more than they were ever likely to be worth very good point. Well made, mate. Thank you very much. Now, John, I, I want to I want to conclude this period of um, of you being at Investors Chronicle with this question. You and your colleagues positively impacted hundreds of thousands of investors' lives for the better. If you could tell long-term investors one thing about the art of successful long-term investing, what would that be? Oh, one thing. Well, so the one thing would be know yourself, but we've done that one already. So, I mean, it is really the you don't have to 
take massive risks to do well over the long term in investing. You know, if you drip cash into the market, if you drip it into assets that are reasonably priced, and I am going to refer back to history here because, because it suggests that, you know, markets have a habit of, of getting through even some of the biggest worries that are thrown at us. You know, they survived a couple of world wars. They've survived all sorts of horrendous, two, two crises that I lived through, the Wall Street crash that obviously I wasn't around for. But markets go on. And, you know, the, the, the magic of compounding, take your dividends, reinvest them, don't do anything stupid uh, with your sort of core pot. Have fun money if you want to want to have a little to speculate. Um, but but the core pot, just be sensible. Don't panic. Don't do anything mad. And actually, don't, and don't look at it every day. You know that will you know will only panic you into action. And I I, I think you know we, we we know the financial service industry makes more money the more you do. So so don't be bounced into doing things. Brilliant. I love that reply, John. Thank you ever so much. Investing Matters in association with London Southeast, one of the UK's leading share information websites for the private investor community. Providing share prices, news and data straight to your desktop, tablet and phone. John, I, I've long been a great admirer and advocate of, of continual learning. Please can you share with us what drove you after 19 years of absence to go back to academia to commence your master's qualification in history of science, technology, and medicine. I find this fascinating. Go on. Yeah, it probably was. It was probably something to do with it was something to do with the GFC, Great Financial Crisis, uh, and what followed, which has been a very extended period of, of essentially monetarism. You know, monetary policy rules all, and you know, and we're still seeing that today. You know, we're we're still seeing you know the prospect of of, of the Fed tightening of interest rate rises is what move, is moving the markets. And I, and I kind of felt that, you know, looking back uh, at history, what we sometimes forget is, you know, what happened in the industries behind them? Yes, the rising tide can lift all boats, but not all boats ultimately end up in the same place. So, so how, do we, how do we understand how industries or science have evolved to get to the point where they are now? How, how have companies evolved to get where they are now? And I just felt that, you know, it, you know and, how, and how, actually, sorry, and how, and how that's been supported or not, by government policy so all of this stuff coming together um i looked at things like the history of the supermarket industry which is absolutely fascinating the history of the broiler chicken it was a particularly interesting story um but but, but it's really interesting because it kind of it tells us why we eat the way we eat today why we have the the, the consumer habits that we do today and, you know look at something like plant-based meat is an evolution of that story so 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 i kind of felt there was so much focus on the market the market the market the economy, the economy, the monetary policy behind it, that we weren't actually really thinking very much about industries and, as I say, how they came to be what they, they are. And I, and I just kind of thought, this is going to change at some point, and I still think it will. Right. But we, we were living in it, like you've already touched on it, we were living in an era of consumerism where things are built not to last, so we end up buying the next update and the next uh, mover, which, which you and, and, and Phil have spoken about numerous times. Yeah, I mean, this, this is this for me is quite a worry. So actually, one of the modules I did on this course was uh, the history of climate change. Oh, I was going to touch on that. Go on. So actually, you know, we do live in this consumer society. There's there's a, there's a great book whose name I now forget, which is about how we've developed into this consumer society, where you know, convenience and disposability seem to be the thing that it's built on. My view would be, well, something's going to happen again. Now we are sort of heading towards a situation where you know we. We, we will be resource constrained. You know, we, we, we have a real problem with, with energy, as we're seeing. We have a real problem with, with waste. 
you know, look at the history of the nuclear power industry in this country as well. It's something else I touched on the course. We, you know, and it's obvious to see why we're in the, the position we are. I think we are probably at a bit of a tipping point in terms of the way some industries operate. You know, I think, you know, you look at you look at the history of, of industry, you know, certainly, certainly during post post Second World War, very much a sort of chemical based uh, development. I think we're going to probably need to see some changes there now again, because we have a serious pollution problem. ESG has become massive. It wasn't really even being talked about five years ago when I finished this course, but I think this is the next big step in, in where we go technologically and, and behaviourally as well. I agree with you. I mean, you, you've got two twin daughters who are now in their teens, John, right? And that era and that generation are so vocal now regarding decarbonisation. All these companies are talking about net zero and all the rest of it. It's a case of really, can they actually manage that? Tobacco companies are, are be are being put into ethical funds. It's I, I find it quite worrying, really. Yeah, I mean that, that is another thing that you know, sort of in the last few years at, at the IC uh, and increasingly with investability, ESG as a label is something that worries me a great deal. You know, I, th- I think as you say, you know, lots of companies get labelled with this 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 sort of ethical, sustainable tag when they're not really. And you know, I I I, I see it as a bit of a gimmick that some companies within the investment world have used to, to kind of uh, to kind of make themselves relevant still in an age of ETFs too much box ticking not really looking at, at the big problems you know talk of net zero well it's it's you know it's politicians talk rather than the sort of, sort of the pragmatic uh, situation on the ground which is what we're we're now seeing the results of in in sort of eastern Europe and Ukraine so yeah it, it is a worry net zero is you know we need to do something but you know what worried me over the past few years was you know watching uh, divestment, watching oil companies, and you know, you know, we don't, we don't need them anymore. We'll chuck them, we'll chuck them on the pile. Uh, we've got electric cars now, and it just seemed, you know, we, we we were rushing headlong towards net zero when we hadn't actually worked out how to do it. Now, I think there is there is definitely a, a need for it, and I think there's lots of companies out there that that could play a part. But I I just feel it like it's, it's it's politically motivated or financially motivated, and and lacks the structures it needs to really achieve what needs to be achieved in terms of you know reducing emissions, reducing pollution, reducing waste. No, I agree, I agree with you. Now, you, you co-founded the educational investing website, Investability, with our mutually very dear friend, Phil Oakley, in 2021. And now you're, you're continuing under a different structure. What remains, though, is a statement of intent, John, to c- captured in your website's tagline, free thinking, plain speaking, insight into the world of investing. Now, I, l- I love that. Please tell me more about the website, touched on there about the um, independence and objectivity analysis and insights that you value for investors, which is much, much needed out there right now. Yeah, so uh, as you rightly say, Phil and I launched it in September uh, last year. And our view was really to keep doing the sort of deep, deep dive, analytically led uh, research into, into public listed companies and uh, and funds where we, we thought they were interesting. So, you know, we've got, we've got a bit of investment coverage up there, investment trust coverage, sorry. And I'd like to do uh, a lot more of that. We really wanted it to be educational. So, you know, it's, 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 it's actually a lot of the time using live company examples to teach an educational uh, aspect. And we, we always wanted to avoid telling people what to what to do you know there are there are hundreds of ways to skin a cat in the stock market you know there are there are always you know divergent opinions on whether something is attractive or not attractive as an investment uh, and re- and different reasons as i said earlier why people would want to buy something or not as the case may be you know we, we said from day one we're never going to say buy we're never going to tip we're going to present a case 
and we're going to present the, the bull case and we're going to present the bear case and it's up to people to make their own minds up so, so that's that's the oh and we're not going to pull any punches either which is <laughs> it's just the uh which is the fun bit yeah objectivity i love it i mean this is what this is what i love about the plan and the structure and what you've got in place to do with investability for me it's about the passion of being objective you know to give the an analysis warts and all to say look now you've got all this information you go away and make your mind up as to what you want to do and also go and do some more research of your own yeah and exactly and so, and so you know hopefully we're offering a starting point and, and a framework that uh that people can can use to go and go away and do that research the other thing we um we really wanted to, to make sure we we did was invest in my previous lines of work I've, I've not always had the freedom to invest as i wanted you know when phil came to join us uh, some years ago from sharepad which he um which he kind of helped build uh before he came to the ic he had to give up his sip which we ran as a, a dummy portfolio but i think you know something i've i've now learned or learned or experienced i would say is just how different it is to observe than to participate when you're talking about stock markets you can be the cleverest pundit in the world and you can nail everything and, and know, you know, a company's balance sheet inside out or, you know, what the likely trajectory of interest rates is going to be. But sit down in front of your broker and put that order in and press fire. That's a different experience. And, and it's one, you know, I, I want to be closer to the people I'm writing for. And, and, and that's essentially what, why we set this up. Brilliant. I, I, love, I love what you've just said there about the, the nuance of writing about it. And I'm not saying it's practical in theory. But writing about it and actually doing it when you have to put in your hard-earned £1,000 or 5000 or 10000 of your SIP into that stock, which you've analysed, it's a whole difference to just writing about the, what the company said it's going to do on a tin and then watching the market go up and down 5 or 10%. It's a completely different thing. I see so many people talking the talk, but when it comes to the market, they've gone, John. They've left. There's no conversation being had about the stock that they owned or were championing or cheerleading for, for three years when it's gone south. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, and that, that in itself is, a, you know, it's part of that sort of psychology of investing that, that we were talking about a minute ago. So, so yeah, I mean, just, just understanding that, you know, and I, I, I say I feel I've learned a great deal. And, you know, we always, we always wanted our readers at the IC to, to do well. Uh, and we always felt very responsible for the things we wrote and the accuracy of the things we wrote. But I would say doing this as an investor now, that sense of responsibility is bigger than it ever was before. You know, you kind of realise, if I've really got to get this this right you know i've really got to be bang on the money because i know how much is at stake being an investor myself good very good point now i've got a question for you here and i think this is one that people are, are basically having conversations about right now growth stocks especially techs have dominated over value stocks for several years can you foresee a period where value investing almost warren buffett-esque value investing style might come back into vogue if so, what metric screening could investors do in their attempt to locate long-term winners, John? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I saw something really, um, I think it was Terry Smith, he said it the other day in his, in his last Fundsmith letter. He was talking about what is value. And, and I thought that was really, really quite interesting because I can't, I, I'd written something similar myself. You know, I'm not sure what value really means. It gets used in all, for all sorts of different things. You know, it's, it's junk that's been sold off or, you know, stuff that's sort of been languishing without really offering much growth or is it sort of based on the ability to pay out dividends you know there are so many so or just you know low lower valuations actually i you know i think you should always be looking for value whatever you're buying so growth investing should also have a, a component of value investing in it if you're trying to find something that's going to grow 
you shouldn't be prepared to do that at any price. What you should be thinking is, is the growth on offer here good value? And so, so, I, so I think these things are always talked about, you know, growth and value are talked about separately. And, you know, on some metrics they are, but actually sensible investment combines the two. And actually, if you, if you turn around and say, I'm a growth investor, well, you're ruling out a big chunk of the market. If I'm a value investor, you're actually ruling out another big chunk of the market. Whereas why do that? <laughs> I mean, just there are, you know, there, there, there is a world of, of opportunity out there and you cut it in half by putting yourself in a camp. Makes no sense to me. I love that response, John. Thank you for that. That is a truly, truly fantastic reply. Thank you. Now, um, I want to talk about your, obviously, you're redeveloping, you're restructuring for 2022 investability. What are your goals and ambitions for investability in 2022? Yeah, um, I mean, I really want to grow the amount of content on there. Um, it's what I've been doing, you know, in the, in the last month or so. We're kind of trying to work out exactly where we can add the most value. And I think I'm getting closer to that. I, I think right now, you know, in, in, the, in the market that we're in, which is sort of uh, febrile, should we, should we say, you know, I really just want to make sure that all our readership have the uh, sort of tools at their disposal to really survive in, in what could be, could be a difficult market. So what else do I want to do? I want to get the podcast back up and running. That hopefully will happen next week or this week. There's been a, a delay, which is my fault because it wasn't very well. What else are we doing? I'm, I'm kind of, as I say, I really want to do something that gets us closer to, to our readership, to, to private investors. So, so we're sort of exploring some things that, around that, that, that will sort of help bring private investors together. One of which could be an event. So, so uh, I moved up to Suffolk uh, last year. Uh, my family have a very large, I'd say some, a, a, a smallish farm or a largest small holding. So we have a venue. So I'm possibly thinking about doing an event. But yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of, yeah, a little bit up in the air at the moment, just trying to sort of work out what people want. I think people are kind of concentrating on what's happening to their portfolios at the moment because it's been, it's been very, very unnerving. But, but, you know, the thing I really want to do is just be fun and entertaining. You know, I think, I think there's a lot of investment writing out there. A lot of it's very dry. And, and you know, I, I, I just, I think to be readable, you know, you've got to, you've got to be entertaining as well. So, so yeah, quirky. That's... Uh, that's that's where I want to be. more more uh, quality tunes in my daily emails. Music is the answer. <laughs> no, that's cool. No, mate, that's brilliant. I mean, if I, all I would say is just please keep me keep me posted. Keep London Southeast posted as well, and we'll try and do what we can to help garner some attention to what you're doing because um, your your work and what you've done over the years has been invaluable to so many people, John. So we just need to keep you and investability thriving going forward. So where can they find the website? Tell us about the website and. Where else they can find you regarding the podcast? Yeah, so it's uh, www.invest-ability.co.uk. There's plenty of free content on the, on there as well if you want to have a, have a sort of look around before, before you decide to take the plunge and, and subscribe. Podcast, well, as I say, it's a bit up in the air at the moment, but you can find it through, through the website or it will reappear in the next week or so on, uh, on the various you know, podcast channels. Apple, I think Apple's our biggest one. Spotify, Buzzsprout, all the, all the usual. And yeah, we sign up um, on the website as well to the daily email. So yeah, lots lots of forms on there for doing that, which uh, which we'll, I'll get up and running again soon. Do you know, I've just been sort of sitting back at the moment, trying to keep an eye on the markets, sort of sort of take stock. And I think I think it's very easy to put out snap views, which uh, turn out to be wrong a day later, particularly at the moment. So so I'm I'm kind of just sort of sitting back, and I think a lot of people should think about doing the same. Don't be panicked into action. So yeah, that's uh, that's that's kind of where we are. It's um, exciting. 
Yeah, be less reactive. Agree with you. John, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today on the, uh, the Investing Matters podcast. Thank you for all your insight and all your education going forward. And I look forward to watching your journey and your, your, your growth going forward. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Thank you, for, uh, thank you very much for uh, having me on. Thank you very much, fella. Take care. God bless. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Investing Matters. Be sure to check out the London Southeast website for free tools and info to research your next investment. You can also join in the conversation on our social media channels. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more content, including our CEO interviews. Catch you next time.